Welcome to Pat's Asidescon, the podcast for developers who love Postgres, where we're going to talk about the human side of open source and databases and Postgres and the many uh, PG extensions. This podcast is now available on all of your podcast platforms, so you can subscribe and rate and review, and you can get to past episodes and links um, to all the platforms at aka.ms slash path to Cytoscon, all one word. Uh, the transcripts are included on the episode pages on Transistor 2. You just click on the, um, the transcripts tab. Um, thank you to the team at Microsoft for sponsoring this, all of these community conversations about Postgres. I'm Claire Giordano. And I'm Pino Ducandia. Today's topic is why people care about Postgres and Postgres. We have two amazing guests from the Postgres community. Our first guest is Paul Ramsey, joining us from British Columbia, Canada today. Paul is chair of the Postgres Steering Committee and co-founder of the Postgres Project. PostGIS, of course, is probably the most famous Postgres extension. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me. And our second guest today is Regina Obey, joining us from the East Coast of the United States, uh, president of Paragon Corporation, a consultancy that does uh, Postgres and PostGIS consulting. Uh, Regina is the author of several books, including PostGIS in Action and PG Routing, A Practical Guide. Welcome, Regina. And hopefully you're not on mute. Um, but if you are, hopefully you'll come off mute soon. We're really glad that you're here with us today. Um, we'll figure out what's going on with your audio in just a second. Um, so PostGIS is not just the most famous Postgres extension, but arguably the most popular. Um, for those of you who aren't I familiar. Sorry about that. <laughs> yay, you're here. Okay, good. Awesome. Yeah, we're, um, let's get going. All right. So those of you who aren't familiar, um, PostGIS, we keep pronouncing it different ways. We'll talk about that in a minute, but it's a geospatial extension to Postgres. It's open source. It's been around for 21 years, first released in 2001. Um, and it adds support for storing and indexing and querying geospatial data in Postgres. And it has integrations with all the third-party tools you might expect, the usual suspects like um, QGIS, GeoServer, MapServer, ArcGIS, Tableau, et cetera. So my first question is, am I pronouncing it right? Like, Paul, Regina, how do you pronounce PostGIS? I pronounce it PostGIS. And you, I Paul? pronounce it either way. Um, there's, no, there's no correct way. It's, it's, uh, I guess there's a more canonical pronunciation for PostgreSQL that people have more or less come to agree upon, although some people drop the QL. Uh, uh -huh. For PostGIS, I hear people use both, and I'm happy for people to use both. It's certainly easier to say PostGIS, um, but if you say PostGIS, that means you're pronouncing GIS as GIS, which nobody in the real world would ever do. No one would say that, say that uh, I'm, a, I'm a GIS professional. They would say I'm a GIS professional. Um, and GIS is, a, is an industry term of art, which not everybody knows the meaning of. Uh, it stands for Geographic Information Systems. And it's been around as a term since, uh, I guess, the, the mid-80s, um, when it became possible to start to take mapping data and process it at, uh, at a reasonable scale inside computers. Um, so uh, so PostGIS actually is a kind of a 
a double play on words. Um, we throw the post in front, so it sounds a little bit like Postgres, and we put the GIS in the back, and that sort of gives a clue to the fact that our way of doing GIS operations inside the database is kind of a new and quote-unquote more modern way of going about it than the old um, desktop and workstation GIS programs that came before spatial databases. Well, so that's, I, I think you're doing exactly what we hope for, which is laying the introductory groundwork about what these things are. Um, so another question we have for you is, I mean, obviously, many of us have heard that PostGIS is a geospatial extension to Postgres, but what does it mean? to be this geospatial extension to Postgres in terms that not just Postgres experts will understand, but maybe people who are new to this will understand. Yeah, I mean, the the best um, thing I've heard about it is its computer vision. So for example, Postgres in Action is listed as a computer vision book. <laughs> and the reason for that is because normally when you want to go measure something, like you want to measure your backyard you go out and you take your stick and you measure it but if you model your whole world in a database then you can just ask the database what's the length of the you know of my fence yeah and it brings so, the yeah sorry, it brings the real world into the database um i mean that's that's the practical utility and the same same practical utility as gis has there's a whole world out there if you model it in your computer, you can have a digital version of that world that you can then ask questions about that might be hard to ask otherwise. Matt, can I ask, what, what did people do before PostGIS? Did they uh, use other databases or, or do this in the application layer or something else? It was, uh, it depended a lot on the software. Um, at the time that PostGIS came out, this is 2001, um, there was one other mainstream spatial database out there, which was Oracle at the 8i. They added um, a spatial type, the SDO geometry type. Um, and then, but it was not super widely used. Like it was a brand new feature of Oracle. Um, the only people who would kind of know about it would be like database experts who were using Oracle. Uh, the people actually doing practical work in geospatial at the time were using workstation-based JS systems. And they would end up having very local um, database systems. So the database would be running on the workstation next to the GIS, um, or the GIS would itself be manipulating the files. Uh, it's sort of indicative of the sort of most popular GIS system at the time was a system called ARC slash info, where ARC stood for the spatial side and info stood for the database side. They used an embedded database called info, which has long since disappeared. Uh, the successor to ARC info was a program called ARC view. And ArcView used DBF files to hold the non-spatial parts of the data sets. Um, and DBF was the file format that Fox Pro used at the time. So you get, it was kind of these, these very local versions of databases. And uh, that was fine because mostly people were worried at that point with capturing the spatial side of the problem and asking the spatial side of the questions. And most GIS professionals were siloed in these special little GIS departments um, not interacting directly with the enterprise databases of the, of the organizations they were working for. So maybe, so, oh, sorry, Claire, I was just going to tack on another question, which is, which is um, so PostGIS helped bring, it helped maybe democratize GIS 
for users and 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 maybe at the same time uh, other changes you know the the, the internet um, all the websites that were created created a lot more use cases for GIS um, would you say what do you think Regina um, I would say so because I think it's the first database that you could actually interrelate um, with relational because um, as Paul mentioned, Oracle was the only one. There was another ArcSDE, which is Esri's mm -hmm. companion to ArcInfo, was kind of gaining steam. So people um, were either divided using ArcSDE or they were using Oracle or they were using their desktop tool. So I think Post just provided that sweet spot of being affordable and approachable to both um, the GIS people and also the relational people. So I was from the relational world, not from GIS. GIS meant nothing to me <laughs> when I first um, got introduced to Postgis. So when Pino and I were preparing for this conversation, we we came up with this long list of questions. There's so many things we're curious about. Um, but one of the things that I, I promised at least one person in the audience that we would cover is it's kind of in the title of the episode, like why should people care about PostGIS? Um, and, and what I'm hoping you can do um, is walk us through a few examples of different use cases of like how people use PostGIS um, in the real world or in their applications or to solve problems or whatever. What are those different use cases? Yeah, so you've sort of, um, there's obviously, it's been 20 years, so there's been a sort of a, a progression, a, a change in the story of how people used or why people would use Postgres. And you guys have kind of touched on the first one already, which is the idea of democratization in the web. Um, in the 2000, early 2000 era, but one of the big motivating um, drives behind people in the JS world was to start to make their data more accessible. Um, and the way to do that is to push it out on the web once you start looking at that problem, particularly in that, that era, um, the tools uh, to do it were sometimes really expensive. Uh, certainly Oracle Spatial was a part of the enterprise edition of Oracle. Um, basically, you're talking like a quarter million dollar ante to play that game. Yeah. So and very, on top very... of that, oh, Oracle Spatial was, in addition to the 20000 you were paying for enterprise, you had to fork <laughs> over another 40000 <laughs> for yeah. the spatial part. So there's a whole range of organizations for which I was like not on. Um, and there were also at the same time as Postgres was coming up a number of different open source technologies for doing web map publishing. And they naturally uh, used Postgres as one of the input uh, data sources that you could map out of. Uh, they'd also use like GIS file formats as data sources, but file formats had serious drawbacks um, for any sort of any, any web map that had any web map that had live data on it. It's much more difficult to update the live data in files than it was to have a database that had, had your data and update that database. is far more reliable and far easier to build it into live workflows. So we sort of started off with these small organizations um, picking up. So wait, web map pu publishing, help me out. Like, yeah. like can you give yeah. me an example? What is web map publishing? Who was doing that? Yeah, so actually, I, I got into Postgres after I got into web map publishing, because mm -hmm. the first thing I needed to do was publish 
city of Boston data on the web. And so I used map server for that. And I was using shape files that the, you know, the mapping department gave me. And so okay. that actually came first. Post just became an easier solution than trying to deal with DB, DBase yeah. files and shape files. Okay, so, so I mean, these are city departments, county departments, um, city planners, people like that. Yes. Yeah, and it's worth noting that, like, again, early 2000 era, who has um, large corpuses of spatial data? It's almost exclusively government, um, but at all levels, so national, state, regional, city. Um, they would have, in the previous 15 to 20 years, as part of the GIS revolution, taken what were previously paper maps and digitized them for computer storage and analysis. So they were the ones who had large quantities of data, question is like how do you make that data visible to your constituents um, in the new web era and that's where the the web mapping revolution came from are there are there other use cases too now um, well, they start, yeah as you start working your way from that early era to the present um, you cut across in 2007 the introduction of the iPhone which is like a huge, super, I guess, I guess it was introduced a year earlier. Anyways, regardless, um, the, the second version they released had a GPS chip in it. And this is like cataclysmic change because all of a sudden the idea that everyone is going to be walking around with a location sensor in their pocket um, really changes the idea of who's going to be gathering this data and who's going to be anal analyzing it and for what purpose. Um, the idea that governments are going to be the prime holders and users of geospatial data just completely disappears. All of a sudden, you've got all kinds of folks. Anyone building a modal app potentially is questions about that data. Okay, you Paul, you cut, out, you cut out for a second. So anyone building a mobile app, dot, 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 finish the sentence, please. Oh, is going to be using, uh, is, going to, is going to need to be able to store, manage, and query that data. Um, it's not just going to be governments who are the sole users of geospatial technology anymore. Yeah. And to some extent, that also caused the spring up of all this crowdsourcing, like OpenStreetMap. Everyone's running around with a, with a phone that they can now um, define their whole area with. Yeah. There's also a, a feedback loop in the sort of the web publishing. As you get web publishing technology, it becomes possible to put a base map, that is to say a map which has things like streets and mountains and water and, and that kind of contextual information up on the web and then ask people to annotate that base map with things they know. And uh, so that allows you to sort of cycle through and change the data gathering loop. The data gathering loop prior to, to web mapping um, and crowdsourcing really involved things like flying planes and taking pictures and then digitizing the features you see in the pictures off the picture. We're doing the same thing with satellites. Um, yeah, and to some extent, that's even gotten better with drones. So everyone can practically afford a drone yeah, now. Yeah. So they... I, I haven't gotten away yet. It's gotten even more, particularly with AI being able to slurp features directly off the imagery. It's become even more important, that channel of data gathering. But putting the maps on the web allowed you to open up a whole new channel, which is, which is crowdsourcing. And actually, if you look at like the publications and articles from around like the 27 to 2010 period in the GIS world, the, the word crowdsourcing, or oh, I can't remember the name, um, neo-geography 
was all based around this idea that you put out maps and get the world to annotate your maps. And that becomes a whole new source of information. And people were just agog that this was possible. Oh my God, people will provide mapping data. We don't need to go out and gather it in a sort of primary source map way anymore. I think that Aaron just dropped a note in the chat, but I, it's worth calling out that this crowdsourcing, this feedback loop um, with respect to maps mm -hmm. has been super useful in disaster situations, right? Getting people who are out there helping with the rescue to be documenting and capturing like what what's happened, right? What's been demolished or what's changed or what's not there, or where they're finding people. Is that right? Yes. That's 100% true. Yeah, there's a project called Ushahidi, which I'm not sure if it's still extant, that really leveraged SMS um, for third world crisis management. And there's a whole offshoot of the OpenStreetMap project called the Humanitarian OpenStreetMap, um, who are very, very good when disaster strikes at getting um, super recent satellite and aerial imagery from the major satellite providers, putting it online, and then getting a group of people to digitize both the previous state and then the current state of the area that's constructed by disaster so they can quickly do things like figure out where the worst hit areas are and things like that. So I, yeah. haven't, I, I hadn't heard about OpenStreetMap before. Maybe Regina, could you, could you say a little bit more about that? Um, I'm curious about how yeah. does that so, get organized? So where does the data go? Yeah, Yeah. so OpenStreetMap is an interesting project because they actually started on MySQL. <laughs> and then um, they were started having performance problems with MySQL, and they were also using Postgres for their tile servers. So they mm -hmm. decided to consolidate on Postgres. So most of their editing stuff is just using raw Postgres, and still the tile servers use Postgres. Um, but that's kind of how it started. It started as a crowdsourcing, you know, rather than pay Google millions of dollars to get base maps. Why don't we just build our own? <laughs> and it started in UK, I think. I mean, small, small segue here for a second. I think my very first talk at a Postgres conference, I needed a map. Mm -hmm. And so I used Google Maps for my screenshot and I put it in the talk. And I think at least five or six people came up to me afterwards and said, yeah, you should probably use OpenStreetMap for that. Right. So that you're using a map that is built on top of Postgres. That'll that'll resonate better in the Postgres community. So anyway, now all my map screenshots are from OpenStreetMap. So Regina, have we missed any of the examples of use cases? Um, talked about web map publishing. We talked about how government entities use it for their planning um, and understanding of you know the territories yeah. and the cities and stuff. Talked about um, crowdsourcing, humanitarian crowdsourcing in the case of disaster. What are other use cases? Okay, so I think. A lot of the really interesting use cases for it are non-visual. So for example, I have clients in insurance. So they use this information to assess the, you know, the likeliness of to basically um, price their portfolios based on locations, like what's the likeliness of hurricane, what's the likeliness of fire, and all that stuff to come up with um, you know, the deductibles and everything. And then a very popular area is real estate. So, so right now, most governments provide their, like their parcel data, which is, you know, defines the footprints of all the land parcels they have. And also they often provide the building footprints. 
And so um, real estate developers, I have a couple of those as clients as well, use that to assess what are good um, plots of land to build new houses based on also the um, whatever the divisional um, restrictions are on rules. So they'll, they'll scan the whole list of parcels based on area and proximity of things, and they can assess, oh, I can group these parcels together to and build this building, which I can sell for X, and I have to pay the person who currently owes it X so they can determine what their profit margin is. I remember um, in Paul's keynote back in Lisbon, uh, he had some example that had to do with Starbucks. Um, and I don't remember the specific example that he used right now, but um, I'm thinking about retailers. Like if I were a retailer, would I be using something like PushGIS to help determine the location of my next coffee shop or my next store? Like, yeah, is it but you'd, you'd probably also be using PG routing, which I should throw that out. Because mm -hmm. you not only do you care about the proximity of your Starbucks, but you want to know how easily they are accessible from, um, you know, from streets uh, and train stations and so forth and how long it would take someone to get there. And you also want to do something. Um, can we, you, can want, we you don't want two Starbucks clo too close to each other. So you'd want to yeah. apply traveling distance calculations to that. All right, let's do a quick definition for people in the audience who've never heard of PG routing. What What mm. is it? Okay, so PG routing is an extension um, that basically packages a whole bunch of algorithms for routing, for network routing. And even though it doesn't use PostGIS for those computations, it uses PostGIS to derive networks from spatial data, which is the most common use of PG routing. So you take OpenStreetMap data or any, you know, you take train state train train lines, train stations, bus stations, and then you determine um, you define a route and then you assign costs to how far what's the cost to go from this station to this station, which stations aren't accessible from each other. And from that you just get a um you, you get the true distance that people have to travel. Because like if you look at Boston, even though a place might be one mile away, it might take me 60 minutes just because of how the city is planned out. You talked about some use cases earlier that made me wonder if there are other tools like, uh, so PG Routing was certainly one of them I was going to ask about, but um, when you attach video images or uh, temporal data, current conditions, um, what does that involve? When you attach temporal data. So there's another extension called MobilityDB, which actually tracks um, things in motion. And one of the cool things about it is you could take, uh, like let's say you have GPS coordinates and travel, you can actually determine how fast you were traveling at this portion of your trip and whether you've accelerated and so forth with just a single, you know, apply the, um, what's the, the speed. So shout out to the team at MobilityDB. Um, they're actually, it's, it started as a research project, I believe, um, at the Université Libre de Bruxelles. 
and um, it works with Sinus. So that's how I know the team, right? They did a bunch of work to make the Mobility DB extension work not only with PostGIS, obviously, but also with Sinus. Um, and so I got to work with Mahmoud Sakar on a you know a blog post that explains how to use all three of those things together. And uh, anyway, so I'm a fan of their project. Um, yeah, and they've also contributed a whole bunch of functions to PostGIS. Um, PostGIS itself to... include support for things like if there are um, images of the street, not necessarily video, but images, um, keeping track of what's what's north, what's south, what's what's direction in images that are attached to geo coordinates. Um, well, sort of. So the, within PostGIS, there's another extension called PostGIS Raster. So you can geo-reference an image. Uh, you can load it in and um, load it as a PostGIS raster format. And then if you geo-reference it, you say like, the beginning of this point corresponds to this long lat, um, then you have information that you can then use to generate vector data. But you can also um, determine things like if it's uh, like if you're measuring population and so forth, you could store that as imagery too. Um, so I think like Facebook, for example, stores their population data as raster. So you don't really think of images as being matrices, but they really are. And so it's a, a consolidated way of storing matrix information that you can then intersect with your other data, you know, with your relational data say, oh, what's the average population in this area? or what would be the temperature generally at this time, at this time oh, of the wow. year? Temperature, climate too, sure. Yeah. Okay, so now that Paul is back, um, I just want to, you can test out your voice here live in front of everyone, or you can hop onto the private voice channel for a moment with Aaron, and he'll join you there, and you can test there. What do you want to do, Paul? Well, I think I'm just going to answer your question and see if that works. Yeah, that oh, works. Oh, yeah, that's better. You're all good. Okay. I'm still reeling from the definition of PG routing. Um, I just assumed it had something to do with, you know, computer routing um, and didn't oh. realize it was be, being used for spatial data. And when you wanted me to call out the name of your book on PG routing, I was like, why does Regina want me to do that? Like, that yeah. doesn't have anything to do with PostGIS. And I was wrong. So. Yeah. And I'm I'm working on a second edition, which I'm hoping I would be done with this year, but I've been saying that since last okay. year. I'll try to get links to both of your books dropped into the chat for people who want to learn more. Um, how do you do that? How do you how do you do your day job and find time to write a book? Um, how do I do my day job? I don't know. I don't have a day job. I guess that's the answer because I don't really I I work at very odd hours aside from when I have to go to meetings during the day. But normally, I think I do my best work like 2 a.m. in the morning uh, when I'm person more after my own heart. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the concept of, of having late. day versus not day doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so we're still fishing for more use cases, understanding like more applications for PostGIS. Um, are there others we haven't talked about yet? Um, well, there's one that Leo likes using, which has nothing to do with spatial, but I think he has, he uses it less now that, um, 
now that we have ranges, wait, not ranges, uh, multi-ranges. So his old use case for posts mm. was to model um, time because he that. had to do, yeah, he had to do health, health analysis. So he had to determine like how long someone has stayed in the hospital and he needed to store that as a single record. <laughs> What does so that have to do? What does time have to do with Postgres? Because you can model time as a line string. Okay. And so you, you can store that as a single record and do all sorts of analysis on it. You can have like the whole history of somebody's health in one column. That's amazing. Are you? Do you find a lot of these use cases that uh, very creative? Maybe for me, I'm I'm new at this, but did yeah. that surprise you when you first heard of it? Uh, yeah, Leo tends to come up with creative things. <laughs> Wait, who is it that we're talking about? <laughs> oh, my husband. So, who works in the same space? Yeah. Well, he doesn't. He's more very very relational focused, more so than spatial focused. Got it. But he likes the algorithms he sees in posts, and he's also used PG routing for um, decision analysis. So for example, PG routing, even though you think of it mostly for road net, uh, for road routing, it's you can apply it to anything that's graph based. So in the case of, let's say you're trying to model. Um, so we do a lot of work with labor unions. So they have they always have a need where they need to model the grievance. So whenever an uh, employee has a grievance, there's a whole bunch of steps that you have to go through. And then if you miss this one, then you have to go down that route to solve it. So he uses PG routing to come up with these um, decision matrices that dictate, like, if you're here, you need to go here afterward. Yep, it's important to bear in mind, like geospatial is really uh, it's a specialization of a set of tools and all PostGIS is providing at its core are a bunch of tools for handling data in, in a Cartesian space, um, up to four dimensions of Cartesian space and tools that, that understand that problem. Um, and similarly, PG routing, all that's mostly used for roads and so on, is again like providing tools that can do graph solving. So if you can state your problem as a graph problem, then you can solve it using PG routing. On the Cartesian side, I've seen people use PostGIS for um, CAD CAM, for computer-assisted design, computer-assisted manufacturing, um, where they store the parts in the database and then use SQL to manipulate uh, the parts and, uh, and do cutouts and things like that using the same spatial tools that land managers use to handle ownership parcels. But it's all just Cartesian math. And I imagine that... Um... In the energy space, so oil and gas, I imagine PostGIS is there as well. Um, am I? Is that right or not? Yeah, third dimension going down, um, yeah. volumetric problems. What's a what's an oil body? Well, it's a volumetric shape. Um, yeah. So people definitely do three space modeling below the surface. In fact, the oil and gas industry kind of invented the whole spatial reference, right? Because they. Because if you think about it, the, um, I forgot which one. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, well, the oil and gas industry was, I guess that's an international industry that was interested in where things are, ended up generating the first and currently really 
the most widely used consolidated database of map projections because they could be operating anywhere. They could be operating in Azerbaijan, they could be operating in the Gulf of Mexico, and all of those areas have their own unique map projections. Um, so the, the European Petroleum Survey Group is the owner of the big database of map projections, and, uh, and you'll find EPSG written into a whole bunch of places in the post-gist documentation, because to, to understand map projections and map reprojections, you kind of have to understand um, how the data lives in the EPSG database. Yeah, and okay. so basically all that is just to say that even though the world is round, we need to model <laughs> it as flat, and so we need to constantly be switching which, um, you know, which projections we're using to model it for what, whatever purpose and whatever area we're trying to model. So if we go back to the, the title of this episode, Why mm -hmm. People Care About PostGIS and Postgres. Um, we've talked about the different use cases and applications and um, probably haven't hit all of them, but hit a lot of them. Why, why do people care about it? Like, why, when you mention PostGIS, in the Postgres world at least, like, you know, there's an affinity that people are supportive of the project, um, even if they don't work on it. Um, why do people care? People in the Postgres community, like the developer community, care about it because we've been around as a major um, user of the Postgres core uh, since 2001, so pre, before the extension um, system was even invented. And we have a surprisingly large user community. Um, in terms of like volume of data, the people using, um, using Postgres for like big web apps and log tracking and so on probably have the most data. In terms of like number of installations, like individual, Postgres clusters, I would not be surprised to find that the geospatial world um, has the most clusters because every small organization that has GIS data to store would stand up a Postgres database, stick their geospatial data in it, and then tell people with a perfectly straight face that they manage their data in PostGIS. They wouldn't even mention the Postgres part because from a geospatial point of view, it kind of goes along for the ride. Um, so we've been around as a big complex extension um, in the Postgres community since 2001. And we've always been like the testing ground for big extensions. Uh, until Timescale showed up, um, there was nothing even close in terms of the level of complexity and how deep um, a third-party extension would hook into the core functionality of the, of the database. And there's been all sorts of improvements that have been made to core. Um, as a result of questions or problems we had. Um, I don't know if I want to enumerate them because they're really super obscure, but they've allowed us to do yeah. things like have our planner work really, really well with spatial data, have yeah. our functions be able to hook in um, to those core, core planning abilities, our ability to cost functions because uh, our functions tend to be really, really CPU costly in a way that Postgres functions aren't. All that stuff um, has gone into core since we existed has been really immensely helpful in making our, our project better. Yeah, I think a lot of the impetus for improving GIST is also post-GIST. Yeah. Because Paul Din refractions <laughs> subsidize mm -hmm. some of the GIST improvements. Yeah, so I mean, the, the spatial indexes are built on top of the GIST API, index API in Postgres, and things like um, the ability to have GIST uh, tied into the into the write-ahead log, so you could do crash recovery and uh, and things like that. Were funded by the PostGIS community. That was the first community um, 
what's the word? Uh, the community funded support project I did. So my company funded part of it and then another half dozen companies around the world also chipped in money so that we could pay the developers of the, of the GIST um, functionality for their work in making GIST indexes crash recoverable. Yeah. That's way that's, back in like 2005. Yeah. And that's improved so many things besides spatial because you think about the JSONB and support and the H store and even the multi-range and everything. So much depends on GIST these days. Awesome. So, so I think to Paul's point, um, the reason why PostGIS is important is because it demonstrated, it showed the world how extensible Postgres is. And I think that just kind of led to other organizations using it and building on top of it. And then on to the other side, in terms of the fact that so many governments were building on Postgres and exposing their data that way. For example, OpenStreetMap, um, a lot of the backups were kind of designed to be loaded into Postgres with a tool called OSMTPGSQL. So that, I think, increased the adoption by a lot of people because if you needed any spatial data at all, Postgres was the simplest database to get spatial data into. So you would choose it over MySQL because as soon as you say, oh, I need this, then MySQL was out of the race. So you both have been involved in PostGIS from the beginning, is that right? Um, I was probably a couple months into it. Yeah, three or four months. Yeah. What do you think, Pino? Should we ask the, the birth story? Do we want to know where PostGIS started? Oh, yes. Let's do that. Let's go there. Okay, so 2001, um, May of 2001. Uh, at that point, I was running a small consulting company here in Victoria, working for the provincial government, mostly working in the geospatial field. Um, because all of our contracts came from the provincial government, we were very tied to the cycle of when they would release and sign contracts, and the government changed that year. So all of the, uh, all the civil servants were very um, risk-averse in terms of signing new contract contracts. So they didn't know whether what their budget situation was going to be that year. So we ended up having like three months where we got almost no direct revenue. But we you know, didn't all go on vacation for three months. <laughs> we, were, we were kind of young and excited about the field. So we thought, you know, let's, let's see if we can build something to store the spatial data in a database. And we had used Postgres for one of our data processing projects uh, the year previous, so we're kind of familiar with it. Um, and that experimental work in the spring of 2001 ended up being released at the end of May 2001 as PostGIS version 0 0.1. And, you know, in the ordinary course of events, like that sort of would have been, and we released it and nothing happened. But amazingly, we released it in like this almost incredible cavalcade of people showed up and said, hey, that's exactly what we wanted. Because there was just this missing piece in the open source web mapping field and the open source geospatial world um, that everyone was really, really hungering for. So we just happened to show up with the right piece at the right time. And we got people like Regina showing up. Um, we got folks from county governments in Georgia showing up. And we got the uh, project leaders of other open source geospatial pieces like Map Server and GeoServer and the Google library showing up within the first three, four months. Um, and that 
community was kind of what made it fun from then on. And it was like, oh, now, now you're not just performing. Like once you're performing for an audience, it's, it's just way more exciting. <laughs> Each release is way more exciting because, oh, people will be so happy and I can't wait to see who else shows up and wants to use it. And, uh, and that sort of cycle of enthusiasm was what kept me interested and, and involved in the project really for the next 20 years. How did yeah. you get, uh, oh, so, sorry, Regina, I'm just going to tack on a question there. Um, in terms of to a truly open project, taking contribution versus the initial single company contributed code, how did that evolve? We started off, um, yeah, as a project refractions. The first website was postgis.refractions.net. Um, and it stayed that way for quite a lot while. Um, in terms of getting contributions, part of it was, it did kind of end up acting a lot like just sort of a classic company-led project in that um, we had always like one person on staff who could do core work and we devoted like half their time to doing core, core work and we just paid for that. And we got some external contributions, but not a lot. Um, we ended up turning one of the external contributors into a contractor because he was so good and he's still part of the community now, um, a guy named Sandro Santilli. It remained kind of a company project um, until 2008, 2009. Um, the open source geospatial community in general set up a foundation to try and provide a, a neutral home for all these various projects. It's called the Open Source Geospatial Foundation, osgo.org. And, uh, and at that point, I had left the consulting company the people, the owners who were left with it didn't want to invest a great deal into it anymore, although they still kept a sideline in the business. Um, so they were, over time, convinced to uh, release the, the code to OSGO. So OSGO became the holder. Um, that led us to governance, and OSGO suggested that all its projects use a, an Apache-style governance format. That's when we went from kind of a benevolent dictator situation, where I was the benevolent dictator, to a project steering committee set up very much model on the Apache Foundation model. And both you and Regina are on the PushGIS steering committee today. Is that correct? Yeah. And so is Sandro. Yeah. So Sandro, the three of us have been, I think, the longest lasting? Mm -hmm. I was actually surprised to find out how early Sandro showed up, too. He was, like, within the first year, too. Yeah. I think he was before me because he accepted my first patch. <laughs> and I remember I thought he was a jerk. <laughs> What? I thought Sandro was a real jerk. He just kept on scrutinizing everything. Like my indentation was wrong. My line breaks were wrong. I should have done this. <laughs> okay, so just in case Sandro is listening to this podcast after the fact, you don't think he's a jerk today, right? No, no, no. We're the best of friends. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, projects require all sorts of people, and Sandro is very detail-oriented. One of the reasons we have um, a really fabulous and deep uh, regression testing system is because he plunked it in there early on when he was a contractor. It's like, I was just asking him, so what should we do next, Sandro? And he said, well, we should do regression testing. I said, I don't know, really, really know what that is, but okay, go ahead and do it. <laughs> and, uh, and now we have this incredibly deep regression test suite um, so it feels very safe to make changes to the code base like I re rewrote whole chunks of the serialization and felt safe doing it because of all the work that Sandro had done putting that regression test suite in place. Yeah. 
Yeah, so all the all the um, upgrading and everything, that's all Sandro's great work. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we'd have real pains. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you, you both have basically been working on PushGIFs for over 20 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that, uh, 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 when you get up in the morning and you're brushing your teeth, and you're, or actually, I, I recognize that um, it may not, it may not be that you're getting up in the morning and brushing your teeth before you go to work because Regina already explained she does her best work at two in the morning. But my point is, does your work still pass the toothbrush test? Are you are you looking forward to it still after twenty years? Yeah, yeah, I, I am. I mean, I think part of it is just the people I work with. I mean, I like Paul and Sandra a lot and uh, Dara Faye. <laughs> who's kind of, uh, well, he's been busy with other things. But yeah, I enjoy the company. And also, I, I still find the topic very interesting. I still f- think, wow, you can take a, you know, a binary blob of stuff and you can apply functions to it and answer questions is really cool. Paul, what about you? I find it comes and goes. It depends a lot on whether I have a project, like a particular piece that I'm working on, which I've allowed to sort of get deep enough into my brain that it's a flow state thing. So then I'm showing up in the morning going, okay, I'm going to get back into the flow and I'm going to be working on this and I'm going to feel that. That's the the part that made me quit running a consulting company and go back to being a programmer is that mental feeling. So to the extent that I'm getting that on a regular basis, then then yeah, it's a, it's a serious good toothbrush time. When I'm out of flow state, I'm just sort of forcing myself to find things or doing small bugs or... Even forcing myself to write a talk, which is the hardest part of doing a talk, the writing of it, um, then, then it's kind of it's kind of harder to get up in the morning. But I get rewarded two or three times a year with you know these big sort of month-long projects where I really put my head down and, and get into that that mental state, and then I go, oh yeah, that's that's why that's why I do this. Can you since since a little bit of a segue from what you just said, um, mm-hmm. what are the challenging problems coming up for the next year or two? Do you have already have a view into that? Um, yeah, I've well, my my big project right now is tying um, tying S two into Postgres so that we have native access to some of the geodetic algorithms that are in that library. It's it's a very big library. It's very C plus plusy, so a lot of it involves this translation layer between the model, the geometric model that Postgres has, and the geometric model that S two has, which aren't quite the same enough to to make it really, really trivial. So I've been enjoying that when I've had the time to get my head into it. My other one I've not really started on, but as Regina mentioned, we have this raster subsystem, which was built in, I don't know, 2010, thereabouts. It was built in an era sort of pre, before everything was in the cloud. And I feel like we need a new upgraded raster handling facility um, that thinks about raster objects as cloud objects first, rather than as sort of local block objects and uh and i keep coming back to that because it's it feels like something that has an immense amount of utility um but requires a new way of going at the problem do you see any opportunities for um the, the new the, the new ai advances so either whether llms or large language models or vector databases to advance some things that were already viewed as completed in in um in postgis 
there's some stuff, there's some, there's some places where that stuff really blows my mind in the geospatial world, but not directly tied to the actual spatial database or database side. Um, geocoding is kind of a really hard problem, and it, it kind of blew my mind how good large language models are at standardizing addresses. <laughs> you can say, here's the standard address format that the U.S. Postal Service uses. Here's some random, ugly ways that people type addresses in. Can you standardize them for us? And we have an address standardizer in Postgres that's built on regex and is pretty okay for the United States. But the large language models just do the most crazy stuff and do it as well as a person would, which is all you can ask. Um, but that's not really a database op. It's just like a, a really super common use case op that the large language models just sort of chew up without any trouble whatsoever and no special programming either. And so that sort of boggled my mind. The other side of it, things like um, feature extraction and so on, is definitely a, a huge place where um, AI is going to keep on changing and increasing the pace of data collection in the geospatial world. But it's usually built as an external, not in a database thing. So it'll just result in like more data flowing down the pipeline to the database, but not necessarily a change in the database, I don't think. What do you think, Regina? You know, I've been trying not to think about it <laughs> because I think everyone is thinking too much about it. I don't like mm -hmm. thinking about things that everyone's thinking about. Well, actually, that touches on my question. I mean, um, LLMs, everyone is talking about it. And I feel like every developer out there is having to think about and decide how much of my time should I spend spinning up on this, ha trying to understand how LLMs are going to change my world, are going to change how I do what I do, are going to change my roadmap. And how do, you, how do you figure that out? Is it a fad or is it a fundamental shift? Yeah, I think it's too hard to tell when something is a fad and when it's a fundamental shift. So I try not to bother until it's demonstrated that it's here. Because one of the things that my brother always told me, you know, I'm always jumping into new stuff. Um, he, compl he claims that he invented microservices 30 years ago. And so he said, don't, you know, don't jump on all this new stuff. It's just going to cloud your mind and waste your time. Just let everyone else waste their time before you bother with it. What do you think, Paul? Technological conservative. Um, I think it's uh, is is an IDE uh, tech, great technological shift. I mean, in terms of the capabilities they provide, if you're a programmer, practicing programmer, and you haven't at least tried it out on a few problems that you have, then you're doing yourself a disservice. Like you gotta you gotta at least try it and give yourself a chance to understand what it can do for you before you reject it. I've already been converted. Um, into at least understanding the utility of it for yeah. my day-to-day -day oh, work. Are you I was, visual code yet? Uh, I'm using it for places where the project and the tooling help me. So when I'm doing work in Go, I'm doing it in VS Code because the tooling works great, and fits in with my projects, and it makes me more effective and efficient. And I will definitely be asking ChatGPT for uh, coding help when I get back and start doing more writing of Go. And I've used it for debugging. I've used it for all sorts of stuff. And it's, you know, it's not replacing me, but it's saving a lot of my time. So wait, how is the tooling helping you? Can you give me yeah. a specific example in VS Code with Go? Oh, yeah, no, because I, mean, I haven't actually used it. But in general, yeah. um, 
Python script for doing database or for doing data manipulations, um, just saying, hey, ChatGPT, I need a Python script that does this, 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 and this. And it pipes out something which runs right away. And then it's very, really, really fast to get it to hone in and improve the Python. Like it, it sticks it, spits out really kind of archaic Python, but you can tell it, no, do it this way, no, do it this way. And soon enough, you have a very attractive Python script. And then for, uh, I've had, had some C++ bugs. It's like, really kind of obscure looking language and say, hey, ChatGPT, what are the five most common things that spit out this particular error message? And oh, sure enough, you know, item number three was the mistake I'd made. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've used v VS Code longer than Paul. Yeah. So even though I'm a conservative. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also conservative so. in some ways. We're not name calling, no judgment, no labels here. Yeah. <laughs> Just trying to understand your perspective. Yeah. From my perspective, I think the integration with Git is really good. So I can mouse over something and quickly say, oh, it's Paul's fault. It really is. Yes. Is it usually Paul's fault? Yeah. I'm the kid boy. We all have our roles, right? So Sandro is the detail-oriented one, and I am the cowboy. What would you say your role is, Regina? I think I'm the one that keeps peace. Um, the middle child. Yeah. I mean, I make, I make mistakes too. Sandro, he doesn't really make mistakes. He just creates really complicated tests that take our CIs five hours to run. So the only thing I have to do with him is like kill some of his tests. So if anybody listening to this um, knows about PushJus and has always been curious about like how to get started, how to kick the tires, how to figure out if this is an area they want to work in. Um, how would you advise them? How does someone get started in this space? Um, I think the same advice as I'd give with Postgres is just to look at the code and see what parts interest you of it. And of course, figure out how to compile it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not not... Becoming a developer is not necessarily an easy thing. Obviously, the first step is going to be, can you build your own copy? Can you set up a development environment that works for you? Um, having a real problem of your own is like super important from a motivation point of view. Um, the old itch to scratch motivation is, is really core. For people who are coming just like from the database side, though, like I'm a database developer, I want to learn about this spatial thing. Rather than pointing them, we have a, on postgis.net, you'll find links to documentation, you'll find links to a nice... Um, step-by-step -step tutorial, which is a great introduction to Spatial SQL. But before even going to that, I tend to say for people who are totally fresh and totally new to the geospatial world, actually start with um, QGIS.org. QGIS is, in many respects, kind of an old-school desktop GIS program. But um, because it's very visual, because it lets you see the maps um, and understand visually what you're doing, um, it's a wonderful introduction to sort of the spatial gestalt before you get into writing SQL queries that use spatial functions. So that, yeah. starting at QGIS.org and doing their tutorial, and then, you know, as a database person coming over and doing our spatial SQL tutorial, I think is like the best path for someone who's coming from database world and wants to be geospatial database. Yeah, and we also have a PostGIS workshop, which we're beginning to translate. And actually, we've got a good percentage of translation in Chinese and Japanese, I think. Um, so that's a good one to look at. And personally, for me, since I'm more of a database person than a 
visual. I still like using PG admin and the geometry viewer in it. It provides me just the right level of being able to write queries and see it right away without having to jump full blown into some into a spatial tool. But QGIS is a is a good tool. If you want the full immersion experience, then QGIS is the best. And I should add, QGIS exists because of PostGIS, because the developer of <laughs> wanted of a viewer. QGIS, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the The initial developer of QGIS, Gary Sherman, he wanted a way to view his PostGIS data, so he created QGIS. And QGIS is now bigger than PostGIS. By a long shot, by a long shot. Yeah. And it's an object lesson that everyone starts out writing a simple tool and then ends up writing a GIS. You just can't help it. You just keep adding and adding and adding. And before you know it, oh, I accidentally wrote a GIS. Wow. And, so and QGIS is, is the desktop program you mentioned a little bit earlier, right? Exactly. Yes. yes. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm on their website now and I'm looking for their tutorial so I can drop it into the chat. What it, it probably is under documentation. I don't know. I'll keep yeah, looking. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. They also have, I think they, they do, like whenever they do a release, they have a visual release, which is kind of neat. I think they have like a video of all the key features that each release has. They have a learn GIS basics, a gentle introduction to GIS. I wonder if that's what go. you're talking about. Yeah, is that it? that's the one. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I'll drop it in the chat. Um, so those are that's great advice about how to get started. I love it. Especially love that there's a way to get started for people who are more visual, um, mm -hmm. but also a way to get started for people who want to be just looking um, at the code and at the data and using qu SQL queries and looking at things from that angle. Yeah, and we have mailing lists and we also have matrix. The workshop that you mentioned, the PostGIS workshops, the ones that you're getting translated, what kind of workshops are those? Are you talking like in-person half a day or in-person three days, or is it all virtual, or what do you mean? It's all virtual, but it's based on uh, in-presence workshops that Paul gave. So it's, I don't know, how many hours do you think that is, Paul? If, um, if you if you do it end to end, it'll take up a full day. Um, I generally like end up doing like the first half for introductory workshops, and that's like three to four hours, depending on how much you stretch it out. Yeah, and um, I started adding up a topology and uh, raster section to it, which probably would take a half a day to. Now, before we started the recording today, we were talking a little bit about FOS4GNA, mm -hmm. um, which is. North America, that's what the NA is, um, version of a geospatial event that's happening in October in Baltimore. Or Balmer, as my husband's family used to say, um, in the local pronunciation back in the day. But um, you both are involved in that. So just if somebody wants to learn more and they happen to be in Baltimore in October, what do you want to tell people about that thing? Um, so there's going to be... You'll see quite a bit of Postgres use and PostGIS because I think most enterprise uh, systems use PostGIS these days. But you'll also see um, quite a few talks on QGIS, machine learning. Um, so basically, if you want to be immersed in the whole open source geospatial world, that's the conference to go to. 
And there's another one that's, I forget when the next one's going. I think the next one's planned for Brazil, the international one. So there's usually a, um, so the Open Source Geospatial Foundation that Paul mentioned earlier, they're the ones that, um, that manage the FOS4G, which is the international conference. Um, and that one, it rotates around the world each year. But the topic matter is more or less um, equivalent, except the North America one has a more North North America focus. And you both are giving talks at FOS4G this year, is that right? Yes. So what's your talk about, Regina? So I'm going to talk about growing the FOS community, I mean, the in a project. So I'm going to, because I, I feel like I'm getting typecast talking about PostGIS, so I'm trying to get away from talking about PostGIS. No, keep <laughs> talking about PostGIS. Um, I don't know if we have. Do we have, you, you did the, uh, the schedule. Do we have like an introductory talk on PostGIS in the schedule? Uh, I'm not sure. If it is, it's not me. Oh, see, I, I wanted to back off and let someone else sort of pick up that thing rather than yeah, constantly I am doing back. the PostGIS workshop, so if you want to... You want you want a true immersion of PostGIS. Mm -hmm. The day before the conference is the PostGIS yeah. workshop, which is three hours. I'd like to point out one thing about FOS4G, both the North American International Editions, which people in the PostGIS community might find surprising, which is um, this strange little niche community of open source geospatial people um, has gatherings that bring in between 600 and 1,200 people <laughs> each time. Um, which, when you compare it to pretty much any Postgres conference, with the exception of EU, is a couple times larger. Um, but even our smaller regional conferences, like the FOSFOG North America, will be as large as the PGCon EU event is. Um, these are really quite substantial events, and pretty much every attendee is a PostGIS user because PostGIS is so ubiquitous in our community. So it gives you an idea which, of like how big the PostGIS community is on a person-by-person -person basis. Which means that every attendee is a Postgres user. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I always found it kind of odd how the two groups, I mean, PostGIS people know they're using Postgres, so that's kind of known. But on the PGConf, they don't, because when I, I first started going to conferences, I actually decided to go to the PGConf ones. So I usually go to PGConf, the New York one. Uh -huh. And it always shocked me that, oh, there are all these people that know what PostGIS is when in the other group. But then this group, PostGIS what? <laughs> and so, so we would give a lot of talks and it was kind of lonely because... Here we were these kind of weird animals that talked about space and everyone was talking about relational. I, so I went to it's very different. I went to a geospatial event in Ottawa um, years ago. It must have been at least 10 years ago. And I met a man from Australia. And I can never remember the name of this book. So I've got to ask you both now. Maybe you know the name of the book. And he recommended a book to me. And it was all about the concept of where. And he was trying to explain to me that this space that he chose to work it in he was spending his whole career in geospatial was really interesting because it's so fundamental to like human beings existence and he's like look anytime you meet someone what's the first question you typically mm. ask them you know it's where are you from where do you live you know where where did you study um 
where do you vacation? It's just where is so fundamental. And so anyway, he was trying to persuade me how important a space it is. And and I think it it clearly is. Um, but do you know the name of that book? Some book about the concept of where? No? No, it does not ring any bells. But I mean, you're, you're touching on what, you know, the, to come back to your initial question, like why should people care about PostGIS? And the answer is because it's very difficult to build a database that does not have some sort of spatial component to it, even if you're not being explicit about it. Um, you yeah. will be modeling objects that exist in the real world and they will have location and you can either not model that location or you can model it. But if you, and if you do model it, PostGIS will help you do it and it will help you ask and answer questions um, that otherwise you'd be unable to ask and answer of your model. Yeah, I mean, so, one, one use case I, I remember now, um, in government, we did community notification. So it's this idea that, hey, you're building something here. You need to notify everyone within five miles. And so the way you mm -hmm. did that is you take the voter information that you got from the voter, you know, the voter department, and you would geocode all, you know, where everyone is. And then you'd have this rich piece of data that you could just mail out people and say, hey, we're developing, you know, this thing, come to our meeting. And so, yeah, so getting to the point of the where, so where is the universal foreign key that most data has? And okay. I think that's an important point because you, when you think about relational, you always think about hard foreign keys that can be easily joined, but you can also use where as a join. And since we touched on the subject of books and we mentioned um, Regina's book earlier, any books for folks getting started on uh, PostGIS and GIS more, ge more, uh, more generally? Mm, I can't think of any. Besides <laughs> your books, Regina. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, yeah, you're hard pressed not to, uh, not to pick up PostGIS in action. It's a, it is the best PostGIS introductory yeah. book that I've seen. I I think um, Locate Press does have a lot of books. So if you look at the... You look um, at Locate Press and you'll also find a QGIS in action, which is a good yeah. starting point for that as well. They have, they have a ton of, Q, of spatial books, a ton on QGIS, and then they have a, another one for um, theming. Well, I think that's in QGIS too. But then they also have a, a training. I think it's more for um, elementary and so forth. So I would, I would recommend look at locatepress.com. They have a lot of good intro spatial books, especially on open source geospatial, because that's their focus. Locatepress.com, so, thank you. Um, PGConf New York City is happening in October, early October in New York City, and PGConf EU is happening in December this year, which is unusual time of year for them, but that's another story. And it's happening in Prague this year. Um, are either of you going to either of those or giving talks on PostGIS um, at either of those events? Uh, nope. No, nope. <laughs> I was <Yeah>. rejected <laughs> uh -oh. from New York City. Yeah, but that's okay. Well, I think well, I was. I I wanted to do a workshop, and they said no. And I said, well, if I have to do, then I want to have three talks. So, <laughs> so I'm not complaining. I got rejected. Well, every all the best speakers all get rejected sometimes, and you know that. So, um, yeah, it happens to all of us. Um, the reason I'm asking is just in case anybody listening is going to those Postgres events and, and wants to hear your talks. So um, sounds like FOS4G is the place to go then. 
that's the place to go this year. It's going to be a, a good event. It's the first North American Phosphor G since 2019, so I expect it to be very well attended. Um, the geospatial community tends to cluster. Uh, again, this is because government has traditionally been the sole source of geospatial data. Um, so one of the clusters is Washington, D.C. So it's going to be a very well attended event. And wait, when is that one? Oh, boy, the exact date? <laughs> it's in October. No, no, no. Okay. Yeah. Um, all oh, right, he, so... yeah, he was talking because all, all the government gonna, is in D.C., so it's going to be easy for government to yeah. attend it. Okay, October 23rd just, to 25th. Regina just read my mind. I was trying to figure out why Washington, D.C. meant that the Baltimore event would be well attended. And uh, obviously it's because they're only like a half hour away from each other, right? Yep. So different And states. we have a Fed Geo Day um, just before the, the big conference. Okay, so before we wrap up and say our thank yous and all of that, Pino, did you have other questions that we didn't get to? I'm all out. This is fascinating. Um, but we could go on for many hours. Uh, we want to thank you, uh, Paul and Regina, for joining us today and sharing some of the history of PostGIS and how you got involved and, um, you know, the other people involved as well in the birth story of this fabulous Postgres extension, um, as well as the use cases. Um, I found the use cases part especially enlightening to just try to envision how people are using this technology. Um, and I know since I've worked on the CITUS extension to Postgres, um, we've always like, I don't know, looked up to PostGIS, right? You're the canonical success story um, in the extension world for, for this database. So thank you both for joining us. And thanks for uh, having us. We will be yep. publishing this within a matter of days. Uh, Carol and Aaron, um, Carol Smith and Aaron Wisling are two co-producers. They've been in the background um, and they're fabulous. And so Carol will be getting this, this puppy up on all the podcast platforms. Um, so you'll be able to share it with your friends and colleagues um, in the very near future. I also want to let you know that the next episode is going to be on Wednesday, October 11th. Uh, also at 10 a.m. Pacific PDT. And our guests are going to be Andres Freund and Heike. And I'm going to try to pronounce Heike's last name, Linicangus, but I'm not sure I got it right. And the topic for Andres and Heike is going to be how I got started as a developer and in Postgres. And uh, we'll drop a, for those of you on the chat, we'll drop a calendar invite link um, that you can use to block your calendar if you want to join us again for the live recording in October. Before we leave, just want to ask everyone a favor, especially if you've enjoyed this podcast. Please, please, please rate us and review us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps other folks find this new show. Thank you. Thanks, Regina. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Pino. Thanks for having us. Great chatting with you all.